Okay, cool. Got it. Okay, so let's start. Um, all right. So we're back to Cracks in Pomo, and today we have Bodiless Organs from IG. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a great honor. Big fan. As am I, because I have to, it's hard to pin down what your posts are about. I think it's something that you just have to see to understand, but it definitely caught my attention. And you described it as obnoxious and what did you say? I used the word obstinate. Obstinate, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, um, no, you definitely have to see it to get it, but I, um, I can't stop scrolling through. So we're going to start today, since we're both safe to say palliites, palliaites, I guess. Um, Pallia's take on a couple of pop stars, starting with Madonna, who she was, she got a lot of attention for writing a New York Times piece. When was this? This was yeah. 96, I think. No, it was 19. I thought it was before that. Yeah. Right December there. 1990. So she wrote this. December 14th. December 14th. So yeah. she wrote this piece about Madonna. The title is Madonna Finally a Real Feminist. So mm, basically saying that she is like the poster child of sex positive femi feminism. What do we make of this? Madonna as a real feminist. It seems so far, it seems so far removed now. This is like what, decades later and new kind of standards have emerged. I guess the whole sexual iconography thing that Madonna did back then is not as uh, scandalous as it is right now, you know, because I'm pretty sure Polly's whole thing was the uh, transgressive um, nature of Madonna's, I guess, performance of Catholicism, you know. But uh, I guess back then it made sense. But today it doesn't really ring. I mean, even Paulita said herself that Madonna kind of has been, has dried up over the last 20 something years, caught up in wealth of fame. But yeah. And their relationship is weird because, I mean, Paulia starts out in 1990 singing her praises, saying how amazing, you know, Madonna is this example for feminists. And then... I guess someone tried to set them up so that they could do an interview or something, and Madonna just kept turning her down, which is... I wonder why. That's so weird, right? Kind of stupid. It's funny because I remember reading somewhere that David Bowie read... Because she also wrote a lot about David Bowie. And yeah. he tried contacting Palia, Palia, and she thought it was a joke. And he tried multiple times and then just kept turning her down. And then eventually she realized years later that it was him and she like totally regretted it. But Madonna, she turned it down every time. Um, and then, so then did, what was this? When she did the uh, Billboard Awards, I think, she said that like she called uh, Paulia out for a what what did she say she's like one of her detractors or something yeah one of the people i think paulia said that she, uh, she set women back or something that like was something something in that direction or not but it was i know she she went on like a was it a rant about misogyny and sexism in the music industry and then yeah she called she called paulia by saying that uh, Madonna set women back through her objectification or whatnot. I'm pretty sure I'm getting that. I'm convoluting the message, but that's what I recall. Which Paulia never said. Like, I don't know yeah. where she heard this. But it's then, just pro probably through the, the grapevine, you know? You know how these things. I these mean, like, you could just happen. read the article, though. Like, you could read what she said herself, but then again, no one reads anymore. So Have you been know. able to find a. Have you been able to find a um, a, a, a print of the article? Because I've, I've been thinking about that. Same with the, the Gaga article. I haven't been able to find any prints so far. So it's a bit up in the air. 
Yeah, but then after she said that at the speech, Palia starts like criticizing her for, you know, trying to gain pity and like turning women into victims rather than, because like that's her whole thing with sex positive feminism that you're not supposed to complain about the patriarchy bringing down, like you're supposed to claim your power as a woman because you are inherently more powerful as a woman. Isn't that what, um, I guess, she was trying she was she is trying to do i guess by saying that women past a certain age can look sexy and uh that's something at least that i think that Pondia was really uh really being really weird about because it's not classy to an extent like some of the some of um some of uh Pondia's, um other objects of adoration i think i'm not really sure who else it was but it was a uh, I, I can't, it, it evades me right now. But yeah, what do you think about that? Um, I don't know. I mean, with the aging thing, I just think it's sad to see these women who were once seen as like these sex icons trying to stay relevant, trying to stay sexy, especially her. It's like, you're old now. Like, what is she, like 50, 60 something? I'm yeah, like, are you early mid 60s? But first of all, she doesn't even look that good. Like some old ladies do look really good. But anyway, like there is a sense that you have to submit to the natural process of aging, you know. And I'm like, but who also the music is not even that exciting. Like the only people who listen to it are like, I don't know, these like I think about when I like when I'm in Greenwich Village and I see all these like old men who used to go to these raves in the 80s and 90s and were obsessed with Madonna and who are now old and irrelevant and like they're the only people who I know who are obsessed with her so I don't know I just think at a certain point you give it up you let your legacy speak for you it's like the same thing with Mariah Carey, you know, her voice is shot. She yeah. looks ridiculous with all these fake breast implants. At a certain point, you have to like know when to hang it up. And again, let your legacy speak for you. Why do you keep trying, you know? It doesn't that just speak to the whole, I guess, the kind of addictive nature of fame, or more so relevance to that, to that extent. But even if they did not, um, even if they, they, to not try all this to remain relevant i think they're just their mystique still persists i mean you say you say madonna and everyone knows who you're talking about and mariah carey and everyone knows who you're talking about so i think and, and, and whatever they seek to do whatever they have sought to do is scrutinized I, I guess yeah i don't know i mean when you look at the original new york times article so she starts out talking about ju the justify my love video which so she's saying that mtv was right to ban it because it's extremely pornographic it's decadent it's mm. fabulous mm. um and it's that's not a bad thing though she's saying yeah like it's it's not because it's an evil bad video like yeah it's totally pornographic and at some points even blasphemous but it's a work of art you know She's appreciating that it's it is pushing these boundaries. It is um, going against these kind of this sense of um, of respectability. I don't know. That's the that's the article where she calls um the the video avant garde, right? Yeah, because it. I mean, I uh, went back and watched it last night. I mean, I, I probably saw it years ago, but yeah, like it's really over the top, but it's really well done it has a lot of depth and um and the way it's shot just in terms of the the videography like it's beautiful you know do you do you agree with um what Paglia said about uh how it, it sort of um like it reveals some kind of i guess moral puritan um like some kind of moral purity and uh something about how suffocating American feminism was back then or still is right now. Do you do you agree with that to an extent? Because I'm I'm a bit I'm a bit um on the fence about that. I mean, if um it depends on how do we understand womanhood, first of all, femininity, and also what does it mean to be liberated? I think, yeah, like if we're gonna take this 
basically this pagan approach to sexuality, to gender. Yeah, like it's a pagan ode, ode to the power of female sexuality, um, that the woman does hold power over a man and that there's something spiritual about it. There's something, I mean, I would just say even demonic about it, but it's, it's inherently fascinating no matter how you, um, no matter how you spin it. Um, now, is it like actually liberating women? I don't know. That's, you know, that's up for debate, but I think the fact that, yeah, like she is taking this very pagan approach to sexuality, it does call into question this sense of Puritan respectability, which is vapid and very just aesthetically has no value. Yeah. She says it has like kind of a um, sadomasochistic feel to it, you know? It does. I think. Yeah. Because sex is inherent. I mean, she's taking this, I guess, from Freud's line of thought that sex is wrapped up in both generating life and ending life like there's something inherently beautiful but also violent and dangerous about it and I think she's saying it's not like sex is not either this bad thing that we have to hide it's also not this pretty picture perfect thing you know flowers and rainbows like it's it's dangerous you know and that's when she that like talked about yeah go ahead that reminds me of a uh I think in one of the essays in sex art in American culture she's kind of deriding this idea of um, uh, like, how can I say it properly? Presbyterian sex or like mm -hmm. uh, what you were talking about earlier about this whole pure view of, I guess, humanity and sexuality about it being, how can I say, censored to be this kind of tender thing when, when in reality it's, 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 has a sadomasochistic element and sadomasochism is uh it's hierarchical and it's uh yeah. it does not permit any kind of permissiveness to it you know yeah and i mean if we're gonna broach it from a religious perspective you know palia has i think it, it wasn't sex art and american culture she has that piece on the Presbyterian church and their changing attitude towards sexual morality. And you see that the mainline Protestant churches, they're coming from this Puritan background that basically removes the metaphysical value of the physical material world. So then we're left with this, these very moralistic black and white rules. It's like either this is good or bad. If you do the bad thing, you're going to hell. If you do the good thing, you're going straight to heaven. When really it's more complicated than that. Um, and so that's why we see that it's either like it's totally bad or like, no, everything's fine. It's all, it's all flowers and rainbow. Love is love. Whereas now she's introducing this, I guess, this more sacramental kind of um, sensibility. Because on one hand, again, there's the pagan vision of sex that is about this... Um, I don't know, this valorization of the body, the body has this transcendent energy. And you also see her playing with the Catholic imagery, which I guess would be the flip side of the pagan approach saying that, okay, yeah, I mean, that danger does lead to sin, which leads to ultimately nothingness. But right. the body also is a symbol of the divine. And then when you channel it in a, I don't know, when you channel that sexual desire in a particular way, in conformity with nature, it does bring us closer to this divine kind of origin. But whether we take that more pagan approach, the Catholic sacramental approach, we recognize that the body is not neutral. It's not just whatever love is love. It's there's more than that. And you see it's that. Like it, yeah. It exists in like a continuum is what I'm gathering from what you're saying. Yeah. And you see that again, like you can condemn it as blasphemous or even again, like I said, demonic, but no matter which way you spin it, you see that it's making a, a very real statement. You know, even I think there's the part when the guy, one of the like more cisgender looking guys, I guess we can say he's wearing a black crucifix. So yeah, like controversial, scandalous, but it's saying something about okay, you're wearing the dead body of Christ around your neck while you're performing mm -hmm. the sexual act. 
it's it's saying it's sending a very powerful message message about what's transpiring in this moment. I've I've never been able to I guess see that in Madonna's music more so because I'm not exactly looking into seeing it as such, you know. But I, I've always been impressed by the. I'm not exactly sure if this is correct, but like militant nature of it, you know, it's very authoritarian. It seems. I mean, even in her dress, the the leather and the the boots, you know, it just always um. It, it speaks to something that I know Paldia wrote about um, it being in the again bringing this back to say the masochism, but about how it is not always like free love hippie bullshit, you know. Mm-hmm. And then one of the solutions she does bring up, which I found really interesting, is about confronting this kind of anxiety, these anxieties, cultural anxieties about sexism. It kind of like blurring the distinctions between uh, hetero and homosexuality, you know, so that it's just plain undifferentiated desire or erotic desire in flux at any given time liable to change throughout the hours of the day, which is strangely, it's, it's a very in keeping with the French post-structural tradition that she so despises, you know, but yeah, just everything being a dynamic continuum, I think that's, that's, that's where I'm inclined to agree with, with her. The only thing I would say though, is that, so like you have these so yeah, you have this kind of fluctuating sexual desire in the video where she's with a very masculine looking guy with someone who's definitely a woman. And then you have these androgynous people. But I think what she's trying to say is that these this polarity between the genders is real. And yes, there are people who, um, who don't fit. There are people who blur the lines. But I think the difference with the post-structuralist take would be that like the people who lie outside the norm in, at least in the context of this video, confirm that yes, there is this polarity. There are, there's a duality between the male and female Um, rather than like, if we take Judith Butler, who's saying, well, no, it's all something we've constructed. I think Madonna, well, Madonna probably wouldn't say this out loud today, but at least Pallia would say like, yes, this is nature but we have this inclination to defy nature, to rebel against it, thus the androgyny, the fluctuating um, heterosexual homoerotic kind of encounters. So I don't know. I think that's what a lot of people get confused with Palia because she like believes in nature. She believes that certain things are fixed, but also that we have the right to rebel, to play with it. Um, I don't know. It's a level of nuance that I think a lot of people are not capable of wrapping their heads around anymore. I guess the idea that there are feminine and masculine impulses kind of uh, reeks of some kind of castrating, um, not, not, not exactly castrating, um, conservative conservatism that people are just not um, ready to hear about these days or don't want to hear about, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and she mentions the decadent writers like Baudelaire and Oscar Wilde. And I, I definitely think there is, I mean, I wonder how much Madonna actually read these people part of, I mean, everybody's read a little bit of Wilde, but I definitely do see some um, parallels there. Um, and you, you see the tension within those two figures between, again, like this kind of pagan demonic aesthetic versus a very sacramental Catholic one. You know, Wilde was torn back and forth his entire life, Baudelaire as yeah. well, you know. But it, it speaks again to the fact that human nature is not neutral. It's not this enlightened. Black and white, like you said. It's not the Rousseau. Like she talks about this in sexual persona in the beginning. Like, Rousseau wants to construct this very picture-perfect ideal of human nature that everything's fine, it's all good, when really we're not. Like part of nature is that we are inclined to violence, to destruction. And I think the authors like them, they got that. Some would say that's a very like, I guess, a fatalist, like kind of like in the tradition of Hobbes, I guess, is he was man is inherently evil, you know? But it's actually funny that you bring up uh, the decadent writers because 
if we consider the, I guess, the cultural context in which Madonna came up, New York in the 80s, and the kind of people she was around the whole time, wouldn't that, wouldn't that have made, it would make sense that she would, I guess, continue in the traditions. Because when I think about New York in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, it's very much uh, Mabel Thorpe, Patti Smith, Keith Haring, Basquiat, mm-hmm. those types of people coming up, you know. And uh, it is it, it did highlight these, um, at least what I know about art, in terms of the kind of art that was being shown in New York galleries, you know, and the kind of music that was coming up, that so there was punk as well. These very real tensions between, I guess, high high art and, and low art. And uh, these bourgeois, essentially, I hate saying that, these bourgeois um, ideals towards purity and, and sanctity and, and um, consecrated spaces for self-reflection and, and then this rough kind of on the street aesthetic and then I know, because uh, uh, Madonna and uh, Basquiat did get together for a time. So I'm just kind of thinking about how her relationship with artists has always been those artists that seek to transgress social social norms and social boundaries. And it definitely came definitely uh, came through in the music. And you know, it's very interesting to consider these things. Yeah, and I do because didn't she? She grew up in Detroit before going to New York. So I just, I wonder, like, when was her artistic aesthetic sensibility formed? Because from what I understand of her upbringing in Detroit, like, it was not, it was very tame. It was fairly bourgeois. So I guess yeah. it wasn't until she came into the city that, I don't know, because there's something about the urban environment that's conducive to recognizing that tension that's inherent to human nature. Like it's, there's more space for it. Whereas, I don't know, at least my experience, cause I grew up in suburbia before going to New York for college, but suburbia is designed to hide that tension, to make it, mm. to, you know, really push this liberal enlightenment view of human nature. And I think that's why so many people in suburbia like lose their minds because there's no space to really articulate what you know to be true whereas the city like it's right there in front of you you can engage with that tension very physically you know yeah it's literally next door you know it's everywhere i mean i guess that's that's how that that's perhaps why a lot of suburban neighborhoods all always look the same there's this kind of implicit idea of conformity you know yeah and it becomes um i guess an internalized and it's always interesting if you think about like cultural, I guess, um, uh, cultural artifacts or how they're like, if I think about the case of rap in particular, how still to this day, it's being consumed by suburban, white suburban kids who, who I guess have never had to face these tensions before. And then they hear the same thing with punk actually with all kinds of radical music forms. It's always, um, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, like, that's my experience growing up in suburbia, because I always had this intuition that there was more than what they were telling me. Like, there was this tension. And every time I talked to you, you were like, oh, don't worry about those things. Everything's going to be fine. Just be yourself. And I guess I was drawn to particularly to forms of music that I felt embodied that tension. And even though I didn't know why I was drawn to it, like, I became very attached to those forms of music, because even though, yeah, it's far into my experience socially, I guess on an existential or ontological level, that music was expressing what I knew to be true. And it wasn't until I was in an urban context that I think everything came together. Cause that's where that music is born. Like that's yeah. born out of that tension. It's funny that you can't you can't exactly say the same thing for I guess stuff like literature and art because a lot of the times it comes from the, the most stuffy spaces, you know. Yeah, and it says something about the difference between literature and music as art forms. Well, what do you think about that? Because music it's much more, it's embodying this, um, this drama in a very concrete way. Cause you're not just talking about it. You're not just telling someone about it. Like 
the um, composition of the song, production, instrumentation, like it's giving flesh to it almost. And yeah, like you can tell a story with the lyrics, but I think it's just the nature of music itself that like captures a certain sense of mystery that literature itself, it does, but it's not, it's not as concrete, it's not as tangible, I guess. Do you think that, do you think that, like, um, you think it would be possible for Madonna to recapture that same kind of animalistic, um, uh, I guess, impulse that she had when she first came out? Or is it just, or is that something that is uh, only uh, possible in youth? No, I think that's only in youth. Because youth is when you're, um, you're more free to define nature like you're more free to push these boundaries to um to be decadent whereas when you're older nature now is dominating you like you can't play games with it anymore you're confronted with mortality the fact that all the things you've done all the tricks you've played they will end at a certain point and to keep pushing the envelope Like, that's the thing that's beautiful about people like Wilde and Baudelaire. Like, Wilde was wild. Like, he went crazy, pushed all the boundaries, but then he found out, oh, there are consequences. Nature gets you back or God gets you back. And he submitted. He said, well, I guess the only choice now is to recognize that, okay, there's, um, there's a higher order and that I won't really be fulfilled in my old age and ultimately in my death if I don't submit to that. Baudelaire did it a little earlier, um, had a different trajectory. But I think at a certain point, like someone like Madonna should look at look into the light and realize, okay, I'm old, I've played the game. This does, it's a dead end. Like you hit a wall. Where where is this gonna decadence is not gonna take you any further now? You could uh I mean, if you did if you did do that, it would take you straight, like faster to your grave where you're already headed that's yeah. very depressing you know i think nature is kind of uh, something inescapable as you suggested yeah and that then the question though again like if we're going to ascribe to a pagan narrative about nature i think at a certain point it will become nihilistic because nature doesn't love you whereas if we are no. going to go to a more monotheistic narrative it's like yeah nature is crazy um, but there's someone who creates that and that creator is benevolent and ultimately has our best interest in mind. So like, you know, and I think, again, that's what Wilde realized at a certain point that there was a mercy behind all of these dark things happening in his life. And did he has to try, I guess it's a, it's a very religious take, I guess, but try to redeem yourself before your time. Yeah, or at least on your deathbed. I mean, there's always that. Yeah, you know, on your deathbed. But what about Gaga? Let's go into Gaga, because Palia really tore her to shreds. Right? Is that merited? Is that fair? No, I don't think so. It seems like it seems like kind of like a a boomer arguing at the clouds argument that she makes. Gaga isn't sexy. Like that's what that that was what I gathered from the entire from the entire I guess. Uh, scandal about it someone who wrote a critique of Palio's critique was like Gaga's not trying to be sexy and being sexy is not the only standard for being a good artist I was like yeah (laughs) she's not trying to be sexy and that's not the only standard but she is if you think about it isn't the I think she was trying to view Gaga through the same lens through which she viewed Madonna back in the 90s, you know, the whole, yes. this sexual iconography, essentially. I think Gaga is a real, is like the epitome of um, of millennial culture because there's something, yeah, so I think there's some, the fact that she's not sexy, that so much of her persona is based not on um being like a sex goddess being you know like it's really i I think a lot of it is this identity politics stuff it's like i am misunderstood i'm an outcast people don't get me 
um, be who you are, be a freak, be a monster, love yourself and you'll be set. Like it's so like millennial that- um, Self-care. Yeah, and like it's that's inherently unsexy because sex is about taking mm. risks. It's recognizing that nature transcends you. It's not just about you expressing yourself. Um, but that being said, like, okay, so she stands for this kind of vapid, um, bourgeois, neoliberal kind of ideal or narrative. Is she artistic? Yeah, I think she is. Not the same kind of artist as Madonna, but I think there's a true artistic no. behind her. Is she... Um, I'm I'm not sure, but in this thing, I think some of some of the because I know the article isn't uh, circulating as much anymore, but she does she does say some poignant things about the I hate to say this, but the culture, you know, mm-hmm. about how we're all plugged into our phones and where and Gaga is pretty much emblematic of how plastic and devoid of emotion we all are. That's the argument that that yes. Paulia makes, you know. But that's, okay, so like, I do think there's something, again, on an ontological level, more powerful about Madonna, like she speaks to this worldview that's inherently more rich than the one that most millennials inhabit. But Lady Gaga's, the fact that she embodies it so intensely, like that offers a very powerful critique of that culture. Like, it's like she's holding up a mirror uh, like a magnified mirror forcing us to look at the fact that there's something very ugly, kind of empty about all of this. Mm. Um, there's something also like her critique is very campy. And that's what I think <laughs> gives her arti- like, that's why I say she has artistic genius because um, yeah, so like born this way, it's this very typical, again, bourgeois neoliberal narrative about be yourself. Sex is not you about yourself. Pain. Yeah, it's like she's saying basically homosexuality is not about defying nature. It's about expressing yourself. But the way she does it, it's, it is decadent. It is campy. And it makes you like think like, yeah, born this way, love yourself and you'll be set. Like, what is this? Like, mm. it is kind of... Um, what does she say? Pallia says something about, it's like, it's so clinical, strangely antiseptic, stripped of genuine eroticism. I think the way that Gaga performs it, she forces you to really think about these things. And that's what camp is. Like you're being intentionally bad so that people will have to be like, oh yeah, wait, this is, it's like an ironic critique of all these things. I don't know. That's kind of depressing to think about it uh, without without sounding too, I guess, overly pretentious. This is something that people like David Foster always tried to get at the heart of, you know, this idea of irony versus sincerity. Mm-hmm. Like why you have to be ironic to convey a point about something, you know, if that's really at the, if that's what's really at, at stake with Gaga's performance, then why is it, why, why does it have to be weird, I guess, or what does it have to be a spectacle when it could just be like a heart to heart? Will anyone listen to a heart to heart? Will that get anyone's attention? No, and that's the problem, I guess, you know. That's why I like her though, because it's, I just, I don't think um, like the heart to heart being transparent, being sincere, I don't think anyone has an appetite for that anymore. So if this is the most effective way to get the message across, go for it you know like i just i think think so i do i do think so because i just i don't know like we can we can move into social media now because i don't know i i see how much people the things that people post they're very moralistic it's like people are constantly on a soapbox preaching some kind of message as if like they really um, think that their opinion, what they're saying on their soapbox matters. And on one hand, I just think it's very inauthentic because who are you to get on your soapbox and preach to me? Like you are 
like we're all broken people. We're all like, none of us embody all the ideals we stand for. So who are yeah. you to, to speak like you, you know, like it's just very presumptuous. Um, and that's why like, if I wanna critique what people are doing, if I think people are wrong, I'm not just gonna be like, this is all wrong. This is self-indulgent and vapid. Cause who am I? Like, who am I to say that? I rather say in an ironic way, that's gonna catch you off guard, maybe make you laugh, but then make you think, oh wait, yeah, I do this. And it's like, I do it too. Like I do ridiculous bad yeah. things too, but I just, I don't know. Like, that's why I think when I look at something like Art Pop, which is this ridiculous album that's like so empty, the fact that it's so over the top and campy it makes you reflect on the emptiness of the culture in a way that's not, she doesn't come off as preachy. She's like inviting you to enter into the, this emptiness rather than be like, I'm up here and I'm gonna tell you people why you're wrong. You should listen to me. Mm. I'm not gonna listen to you if you talk to me like that. It seems rather overconsumptive though, you know, if I'm trying to say if that makes any, if that makes any sense. Like you have to be over the top to get your point across. Yeah. And, but that's, I think it has moral value when you do that, because again, you're not being presumptuous. You're not being like, oh, look at me. I'm so moral. I'm so righteous. And you should listen to me. But also on an aesthetic level, when you put on this over the top performance, like it's entertaining. So in a sense, it's almost charitable to do that because not only are you getting truth across to someone like you're entertaining them. You're showing them something fascinating in the process. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a show. It's a it's a it's it's a. I think it's kind of. I have my my own issues with it, but I understand what you're saying, you know. And I'm definitely guilty of doing the, the very same thing. It's just that does it ever get to a point where you can actually get back down to earth and have a face to face conversation and, and be earnest about your beliefs and how, how you're feeling and what yeah. you wish to say. I think there are different um, different stages. There's like the performative stage, the public stage where I think, yeah, like you can put on this over the top performance. Um, but then when you're having a one-on-one -on -one encounter, then yeah, I think that's a, a real context for being sincere, having the heart to heart, but I don't know. I, this is this is like one of the ideas that Charles Taylor, who I'm really into, talks about. Like he says that there are spaces of structure and spaces of anti-structure. So basically, right. there are spaces where the um, how can we put it? We're we're expected to conform to the the design of nature. We're expected to you know to go along with what's expected of us, but then there are spaces where we can transgress those laws. We, and, and we don't pretend like those laws aren't there. We know they are, but um, like we can't just be rational all the time. Like there has to be yeah. space for us to be ridiculous and outlandish. So I think, yeah, when we're talking about big moral social issues in a public sphere and on a public stage, yeah, like I think totally we can afford to be performative. But when we're talking about real relationships with people who I don't just know on social media, but people I like actually share my life with, then no, I'm not going to put on a show for them. Like I'm going to no. listen to them and talk to them for real. How do you even go about having these conversations on social media without being so convoluted or being or put, putting yourself out there as being someone that's so self-obsessed with their, what they have to say? No. Um, mm, I don't know. It's kind I mean, of an impasse. I think it also depends on personality type. Um, I don't know. I just I've realized more and more that like when I'm posting stuff on social media, I really like I have I can't stomach when people post these infographics about social issues. And again, it's like they take it so seriously as if my opinion really matters and I'm making a difference. And again, I'm like, who are you? Why do you think you posting an infographic is going to. I don't know. I just don't like the idea that we can presume to be these moral exemplars when really, you know, 
like why do you have the right to preach to me and tell me about why your cause is so righteous and I'm not enlightened enough like if you want to challenge me then like then entertain me then draw me in like it's just it's aesthetically kind of vapid when you present I mean, it's, yeah you it's know. deadening to the spirit but then this brings up the question that we were talking about before. So people who advocate for certain social issues or moral issues, are they just performing an identity? Like, is that really what they're trying to do? Or is there actual moral weight behind what they're doing? I'm going to say no. I think it's purely performative and their performance is not a good quality one. Right. I mean, I, I'm inclined to say that there, there is a, at least some kind of semblance of genuine concern, but in the arena of social media, it does not seem as, as if any, as if anything matters, so to say. Everything's just about um, social posturing, you know, symbolic capital and, and having some kind of, I guess, a, an audience and telling your story. If that, that's, uh, that's a lot of a lot of it is kind of self-centered and narcissistic, but then there is also that aspect, this whole communal aspect where we're sharing information with one another and we're furthering otherwise unknown causes. It, it does seem very self-indulgent and self-congratulatory, you know? I get where you're, I get where you're coming from. Because mm, like when I see a lot of people who will post these infographics, and again, the way they will construe it, it's very... It's very puritanical. It's like, yeah, I am enlightened. I know the truth. I stand for the truth. You people don't. You need to get with the program. Otherwise, you you're not woke. on the right side. But also, they'll post that simultaneously with these selfies with, you know, themselves doing very self-indulgent things like getting wasted at a party, whatever. And I'm like, at what point does standing for a moral issue um take over my entire lifestyle you know yeah. like if i'm all about furthering the cause of minorities of those who are impoverished at what point do i live a level of spiritual poverty you know like i can't just fight for social issues while living a spiritually indulgent lifestyle like that's a contradiction like people who are all about you know i don't like i see a lot of people who criticize consumer capitalism but their lifestyles are so consumeristic in terms of, again, like being self-indulgent. So that's why I'm like, you're putting, you're performing an identity and your performance is morally vapid, but also aesthetically it's weak because you're not even acknowledged, like you're not even putting on this elaborate show to entertain us. Like if you're going to put on a show, acknowledge what you're doing and do a good job. Um, but that's, I don't know. That's why I'm just very disillusioned with a lot of what I see. No, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I think a lot of people do neglect to, to acknowledge that being on social media itself, we are effectively performers, you know, it speaks to this, something I previously read about the, the um, democratization of cultural power. Now we all have these little audiences to whom we perform and being on social media and doing all of these things, we are effectively positioning ourselves as both performers on the one hand and as audiences on the other. So it's like a kind of, we hold these positions concurrently, you know? So it, to an extent, it most certainly is performative in the sense of performances being um, put on, but then also given the, the weight that the word performative has right now, especially in terms of quote unquote performative activism, when even though personally, I think all activism is performative essentially, it's a political performance. It doesn't help that it has this negative connotation to it and people are trying to be as authentic as possible in the most existential sense of the term is in I am this and I will sacrifice my uh, well-being for this. But yes, yeah. I, do, I, do, I do agree with you. And I do concede that it is performative or vaudevillian if, if I can go so far suggesting that. Yeah, and if we are going to presume to stand for some moral cause, like my whole thing is that like morality, like I don't achieve morality by my own efforts because like I'm 
far from perfect. Like I am very selfish. Right. I do self-indulgent things all the time. So like to claim myself as an exemplar of morality, like I just think it's ridiculous. And I think yeah. if, if I'm going to speak about a moral issue, like I need to speak about it in a way that is, that recognizes that I'm detached from it, that like this moral ideal comes from something beyond me. I don't live up right. to it. So if I'm going to speak about it, that's why I do think, yes, like I need to speak about it ironically or in a paradoxical way, just out of the humility of saying that, yeah, I believe that this is true, but I know that not only do all these other people not live up to it, I know I myself don't live up to it. So right. it's like to identify myself with the cause, I just think that is not authentic because you are not, you're not perfect and you will never be. I think that, yeah, I, I'm certainly guilty of doing the same. But then over these, um, as, as, as I get older, I guess, I'm kind of wary of this kind of uh, hip cynicism that I see some of my peers, if you know, if you know what I'm talking about, you know, and it's this overly self-aware, um, this over, this overly, so this sense of like paralyzing self-awareness where you're essentially paralyzed into inaction and, and irony. I can see that irony and um, uh, this this whole idea of being uh, self-referential is a a black hole. It becomes an end to itself, and you just end up spiraling. And there really, there really are no um, definitive answers to provide here, you know. But I just, I, 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 I'm wary as well of the whole, um, the, 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 the idea of working with uh, these. How can I say? Like you, like to borrow something you said, these paradoxes, you know. And I, did, I don't even think that there are, there will be any answers. But it's just always a, uh, a worry, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I, I want to go more into the topic of aesthetics, but just to add a lot of what I'm saying, like I'm thinking of people like, take von Balthasar. So his whole, I guess, like his theological approach to ethics is to say that like you can't have ethics without aesthetics because mm. ultimately ethics is this performance it's this drama between the human and the transcendent. So right. if we don't begin with an understanding of the value of performance, of aesthetics, then our morality is just gonna be really empty because then there's no sense of the drama. There's no sense of this tension anymore. It's just, I'm moral because I decided, well, that's boring. I don't wanna watch that. There's no, yeah, there's no beauty to it is what I'm getting from you. Yeah, like if we're going to talk about morality, we do need to start with beauty. And I do think performativity yeah. is very much connected to beauty aesthetics, you know. But let's talk more about like aesthetics as it has to do with art, because I know you're very into modern art. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think that... Um, it's a very, I guess, really cliched um, position to take, but I think more that aesthetics is, is really irrelevant to, to art, if you know, if that makes any sense, any kind of sense. So then what constitutes art? I'm, I'm inclined to agree with some, a sort of conceptual art critique of art and more so to emphasize the uh, concept and idea and context, you know, it's the same thing that um, has been happening with the same to certain reflexive, self-reflexive trend in art since I would say Duchamp and Dada and the Surrealists about art is art insofar as it is placed in the art context. I mean, Duchamp went so far as um, placing a fountain in the, in, the, in, the, in the context and calling it art. And a hundred years later, we view it as the the epitome of um i wouldn't say yeah epitome of i wouldn't say postmodern but modernist art you know so that that's how that's how i would define it nothing to do with aesthetics at least not entirely to do with aesthetics yeah because i mean i know a lot of more traditional conservative people who will tear abstract art to shreds and say you know like it's nihilistic there's no beauty and i'm like and well, you're right 
yeah you're not wrong yeah. like a lot of it is ugly but it has value in so far as it's pointing to the ugliness of our culture the ugliness within humanity like it sends a powerful message it provokes thought so then back to your point about well, what constitutes art like it doesn't necessarily have to be beautiful but um it does it, it sends a message it's and it also has to do with i guess like the form and content i don't know but you can say more about that because i think you understand that better than me i i would um i i i think that my i my my view of form and content is very very much in keeping with i guess the the uh, quote-unquote deconstructive deconstructivist idea ideas that are rampant in like liberal arts campuses and especially in um as the this whole um i'm not really sure if you're if you're uh in keeping track but like nfts and, and whatnot you know Mm-hmm. these new interesting propositions to art that pretty much suggest that form and, and 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 content are not as do not have a primacy as we once believed you know because some of the some of the the most quintessential i guess ideas around modernist art is that there is a, a significant form it, there is a, a content uh there is a uh, a kind of I, I wouldn't i would not exactly say something close to a platonic ideal but there is something within art that makes it art and it, this can only be achieved through aesthetic reflection and only mm-hmm. though it, it is in a sense the idea that through aesthetic aesthetic reflection you can uh come to understand art you know viewing art and art, art as a transcendent in a as a way as not exactly the thing in itself but as something which has a reflective i guess a cognitive aspect and uh my idea is that there is no such thing it's very very um i, I hate to say subjective because that's just the most lukewarm thing you could say about mm-hmm. artistic reflection but it, it, it is very much a game essentially mm-hmm. it is very much a game it has to do more so with with individual and collective enunciations and beliefs and desires and more, it has almost entirely nothing to do with uh, beauty or, or 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 some transcendent idea or like art as a consecrated idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say though, like as much as I don't like when people discount the value of modern art. I also don't like when we, if we blur the lines and say like, it is all relative because like there was one day a couple months ago, I went to the Met in Manhattan and um, I saw the Alice Neal exhibit, which was interesting. But then I just like poked around the medieval, I guess more Baroque kind of section and I could, and then, so like I went there and then afterwards I went to the MoMA and it had a noticeably different effect on me. Like I felt that being in the Met inspired certain sentiments in me that I did not feel in the MoMA. Like in the MoMA, it made me think, it made me ask a lot of profound questions about our culture, about society, about human nature, but it didn't nourish me in the same way. Why do you think that is? Because I don't think modern art is trying to point to these objective realities that do redeem, that do fulfill the human person. I think it's, again, trying to critique, it's trying to perhaps deconstruct certain aspects of society. But I do think older forms of art are trying to actually offer something that will fulfill the person or point us to this ultimate ideal. Just because modern art doesn't aim to do that again i don't think it's fair to say it's useless or bad but i just i can't say that it had the same effect like there was a noticeable difference and that matters do you think that do you think that it was more so about well, the content of the painting or just the kind of um uh do you think it was about the form like the content of the painting like what depicted or was it something deeper than that i think it has to do with form yeah. For the most well, part. art art is art is very 
at least the way I understand it, especially after say someone like Warhol, it's very um, how can I, it, it, it's 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 a, it's a true statement by virtue of uh, by necessity or by virtue of its logical form. You know, it kind of it kind of instantaneous. It kind of makes itself true. If 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 that makes any sense, you know, it's a yeah yeah yeah. So what I can say this though, if I read about more modern artists, if I read their stories, if I read the backgrounds of certain pieces that they did, that will fill my soul in a way that, um, like if I just looked at it without knowing the context, I wouldn't take that away. Like when I yeah. read about Warhol's life and what inspired certain paintings or, you know, silk screens, whatever, then I'm like, oh my God, like this is so beautiful. And this it, it um, responds to some like need I have in my soul. Whereas if I do look at, like if I look at a Caravaggio and I don't know the whole story behind it, I think inherently it does speak to me without me having to know. Um, and this is why I think some people say modern art is kind of elitist because it's like, you have to be enlightened. You have to. I know it most certainly is. If you think about the types of people that go to art museums or art galleries, just in general, it is very much, I, I very much would argue, uh, I guess it, that these kind of, these kinds of places are, um, I hate to say this, but they, they, they produce types of people, you know, if that, if that makes us, if that makes sense, they're kind of like a, a consecrated space for artistic, artistic reflection, but that art, that artistic reflection is predicated on a certain kind of education and a certain kind of socialization. When I think about the people that, especially moving through art circles around the world, where when I think of the people that I've met, there's always this, um, there's this air of, um, that they are, I would not say highly educated, but they received a specific type of, uh, uh, they, they've had the taste passed down onto them, you know? It's, a, it's very much situated within social field, I think. Yeah, and it, this makes me think about, I was teaching a class once with, it was mostly like kind of urban inner city youth. And like, I was showing them different pieces of art and I asked them to rate them. And I remember the one that they hated the most was a Basquiat piece. They were so oh, sad. And it's like, it's funny because it's like a lot of these kids had a similar background to Basquiat, but they were so scandalized. It's like, this is ugly. And it's like, why would you want to show us something ugly? Like there's like no consideration for us as the viewer. And the one they yeah. ranked as the best, I think it was between Da Vinci's Last Supper and Botticelli's um, Primavera or whatever mm. I think it's called. But and I, I like I challenged them to be like, okay, why are you saying these pieces, which you know are kind of foreign from their social context, are more beautiful? And a lot of them said it's because we understand what's happening, like it makes sense. Whereas the Basquiat one, it's like I don't get it. So. I would think, yeah, I, I would agree with them to that to that extent. But I think Basquiat is very deceptive as an artist, or is it just a general figure in the art world? Because he his his whole image is, I, I guess he might have co contributed to it somehow. But he was very much the son of an accountant, or it's a middle class um, type person. He ran away from home to sort of husk it out on the mean streets of New York, you know. His image is very deceptive. That's one thing that I've haven't I've, I haven't seen people talk about, especially after the whole scandal with Jay Z and Beyonce, and uh, I think it was Tiffany's had a painting, and this whole uh, intersection of like black capitalism in the art world. No one really mentions that Basquiat was just not some street kid. He was very educated, and also he he came from a fairly affluent background, but then. In order um, to, I guess, he, 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 he did exactly what you were suggesting earlier, you know, he made a spectacle of himself, he performed something. And it also helped that his art was, I guess, good, but essentially he performed being this rough down, down and out kid who made these amazing paintings. So I would very much align Basquiat within this, uh, this tradition of middle-class artists that, that put on a performance of poverty you know and 
this grungy or about because that that's what you said earlier about um something visceral about the urban environment you know he very much adopted that and he's he he took it to its uh, logical conclusion i guess you know he burnt himself out and uh, yeah sad sad to say but he was not um he was very much within he very much grew up in the same in the same framework that he wished to critique and it ate him up and chewed him out spat him out i mean yeah yeah Hmm. so let's let's close with this considering how chaotic frenetic postmodern culture is where can we find where where do you find authentic beauty as however you would define it uh i i wouldn't i wouldn't i I would say that i'm still caught up in just the critique part you know i would say that i'm as as i am right now i'm very much still stuck in the whole loop of self-awareness and that nothing is beautiful yet everything is simultaneously beautiful it's kind of a it's it's an impasse you know and i would say it is in part due to this um boomer thing there's a uh, something about the creative and uh social and technological apparatuses being in control being controlled by like the most regressive and the most regressive types of shit that we see nowadays mm-hmm. but yeah it's just it's just a word salad essentially is what i'm doing i'm trying to intellectualize there is no emotion present it's just pure intellectual abstraction and i am still stuck in that there is no way out it's very um fatalistic and unfortunately i perpetrate it in my attempts to escape it because i've been trying to i see what i'm doing just word salad pretty much that just intellectual abstraction there's no substance at all I think the fact of being stuck in this tension and recognizing it, that itself is substantial, I would dare to say. What happens when you can't escape it? You, I think you affirm it and you, you communicate it. I think, I mean, that's, because otherwise what? We either wallow in it, we ignore it we blind ourselves but like to say yes this is where i am this is what i'm experiencing and then you communicate it like i think that is itself an extremely substantial thing place to be in but what about you where do you find it um where do i find it yeah true beauty true beauty um i would say I I need to see that all these intuitions about um, like when I see something like, you know, whether it's a music video by Madonna or Gaga or the song itself, like when I see something that kind of provokes, not just provokes thought, but provokes me on the level of like the soul, like on this deeper ontological level. Um, I want to see that I can share that experience of being provoked with other people and that like when someone can affirm this, when someone can be like, yes, like I affirm this to be true, I recognize this, like that connection, that encounter sparks something even bigger because it's now, now it's a shared intuition and it's like, it's the opening of, I think some greater discovery. So I think it comes down to like, I don't want to discover these things in isolation. I want to share them with people so that it can be op- open me up to the possibility of seeing more, even if I don't know what that more is, even if I don't know if it exists, like the fact that now there's this link, there's a possibility now, I think. At least that's what I see. Yeah. Which is like comm- communal escape, I guess you try to, you're, um, sort of relying on a community through which you can express yourself and have that community expressed or running through you, I guess. 
Yeah, but it's like, I, I do experience it not only as an escape, but as like, as the opening of something that I did not okay. foresee. Like I, I just see that um, something new comes into play when now it is shared with someone else. And there's, again, there's the possibility of more than what I calculate to be possible. God, so that's beautiful. It is, when it happens, it is. And this is why I'm not like, this is why I'm not in despair. Like, yes, I'm frustrated. I rip my hair out some days, but I am not in despair right now. Well, that, that the worst thing you could do is to come to it. Yeah. 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 So that's why I think, yes, let's talk about it. Like, let's, let's, yeah, let's generate these conversations and not just. It's important. Yeah. So. Anyway, what do you want to plug before we finish up? Uh, we mentioned your Instagram. I guess, oh yeah, um, and uh, probably I'm working on a, uh, working on a couple of things. Working on a newsletter, okay. a Substack, naturally, same kind of intellectual, meaningless pursuit on Substack, writing nonsensical articles, and uh, I'm working on a uh, a. a a magazine i'm revamping i had an online zine a couple of years ago and i'm kind of revamping that and i'm looking for i guess writers and and people to work with and uh i think yeah that's about it can i plug my friend's podcast or something of course sure yeah check out um hold on let me put it out uh drug called gang i was recently on that one with uh dank Delos. I and uh, you follow them, yeah. Sorry, I think you follow him, Tony. Yes. Yeah. And also, Benzo Rehab Dungeon. Those are two, um, two I guess uh, acquaintances. But I really, I really fuck with their stuff. And also, thank you for having me on. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed. Yeah, it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cool. So thank you for joining us and we thank everyone for listening and we hope you've yeah. been sufficiently scandalized.